were to take the pulse of this country, our collective heart rate might not be so good. And it's not just about COVID. It's about how we are treating one another. There's a lot of sadness, a lot of frustration, a lot of disappointment, and a lot of anger out there. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. The woman you are about to meet knows what it felt like to be a Metco student, to be bused from the city to an affluent white suburban town, to find a way to fit into a mostly white population while still preserving her unique identity as a proud African-American. As an adult, she would go on to teach in the very same school system that she grew up in and serve as the Metco liaison. Now a wife and mother of three, she is a champion for diversity and racial equality. She is dedicated to equity and social justice. Her name is Christina Horner, and this is her story. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. There's so much to say, but let's talk first about your present job at Great Schools Partnership. Yes, I've been at Great Schools Partnership for almost five years now, and the company is based out of Maine but they work nationally. The mission of the organization is really to create schools that are meeting the needs of all kids and really promoting educational equity with an emphasis on racial equity. You are also an educational consultant, and that's not just about advocacy for special needs kids. This is also about helping people who are going through maybe a racial discrimination case, they need support. Tell me about that, that's fascinating. It is complicated. So I was involved in what I've been told is a landmark case. Usually racial discrimination suits against institutions are very hard to win, let alone prove. And many attorneys will shy away from it because there really isn't that much money in it. And so unfortunately, I was involved in a situation where in terms of my advocacy, I was punished and I was targeted. My so-called friends turned their back on me. And it was a very difficult time. But my mother raised me in terms of making it very clear, you never have a choice to do the right thing. And so I was vindicated in the end, but it was uh, so many life lessons in that experience. And so when the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, when they acknowledged that there was probable cause, it did make the news. There was an interview. And as a result of that, I end up getting calls from people who want to know how I did it. And I also coach lawyers because many lawyers don't understand how complex schools can be. And so I've worked with people locally and nationally in terms of what should they do? What, where should they look? And then also more importantly, coaching the victims that it's going to be a long, hard road and you're going to be very surprised at what you're going to learn about the people who will turn their back on you. You are also the co-president of the World of Wellesley. Tell me a little bit about the focus of this organization. The vision is to create a Wellesley that is inclusive for all, period, the end. And then in terms of the mission, it's really about collaboration on this journey of anti-racism and anti-bias. Whether you're gay, transgender, Jewish, Christian, you should be able to call Wellesley your home. Your high school guidance counselor suggested that you apply to Boston College. Tell me what your college experience was like. You were a business major. Yes. So my question for you is, when you were at Boston College, having your college experience, at that point, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? I think what I really wanted to be 
was rich. <laughs> it wasn't a matter of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be rich. And so we didn't grow up in poverty. My mother was a teacher. You know, we, I would say we had a solid middle class upbringing. But I think it was the experience in the MECO program and going to school in Weston, which basically, it's a bubble, just like Wellesley's a bubble. And then I started seeing, oh my goodness, people like this are real. You know, the, the, the amount of wealth and affluence. And I think I wanted a piece of that. So it wasn't so much what I wanted to do. It was about what I wanted to have. Let's go back to your family situation. Paint me a picture about what life was like in your house. Where are you from? Born in Boston, raised in Boston, met my husband in Boston, went to Boston College. I am truly a Bostonian. In terms of growing up, like I said, my mother was a teacher. The family owned a business. They owned a taxi company, Brathwaite Taxi, and then the name changed to National Taxi. So we didn't do without. I would say my beginnings are very humble. I was born into poverty, but my mother went to college and, you know, our, our life was very different. We never went without. So, but when you go to a, a school, one of the most affluent schools in the state, and at I think at the time I was there, it might have been one of the most affluent school districts in the country, you start to notice things. And so even with a solid middle class, maybe even slightly upper middle class upbringing, you're like, oh, wait a second, maybe we are poor because we're not living like that. So, so that was the impact that it had on me. What was the message in your family about values, about work ethic, things that mattered? You know, I would hear the expression over and over again, you work hard, you get what you want. I think that was a very simplistic way of just communicating to us that, you know, there is no easy road here. I always knew from the very beginning I was going to college. And I know sometimes that message isn't communicated to people, but I never remember that not being part of the conversation. So now I begin to wonder if I even had a choice. And so my mother had gone to college. My grandmother did not. So my mother was first generation, and then we were second. But college was an expectation. Good grades were an expectation. We went to church every single Sunday, vacation Bible school. And so even in terms of how you treat people, regardless of their race class, that was really, really key. And so I would say my mother had a very diverse group of friends, and we went to Tremont Temple Baptist Church, which was the first integrated church in America. So the church was pretty diverse. But yet that absolved me from the experiences I had experiencing racism, even within Western public schools. Let's talk about that. Your family made a decision. We're going to put Christina in the Metco program, and you probably didn't know where you were going to end up, but you were going to get on a bus and leave your community. Take me back to your first day at Weston High School. Were you terrified? I wouldn't say I was terrified, but here, here's the story behind that. We had received the call twice, and it wasn't until the third time that my mother finally said yes. So I didn't start the program until the fifth grade. And not only was it the fifth grade, but I didn't start until after school had started. So, you know, talk about the disadvantages in terms of starting school. Here it is, new kid, fifth grade. Fifth grade, in some cases, is the beginning of middle school, but, you know, it, it, it depends on your community. And then I started late. So now I'm on a bus going. It, to me, it didn't really seem that far. We lived in Roxbury, close to the south end. So it didn't seem that far, but Wellesley, just like Weston, it's a very tight-knit community. 
So I didn't have the advantages that everyone else had. They had known each other since kindergarten. So that was very hard. It was, it was very difficult. But I would say in terms of the bus ride, the bus rides were fun, at least in the beginning. Um, then I realized, oh my goodness, why am I doing this? But when you're a part of the MECO program, when you ride that bus, you become family, no matter what. You become family. You might argue like cats and dogs, like your siblings. But many of my friends over the last 30 plus years, I'm dating myself, we rode that bus together. You know, talking about riding the bus together and creating your own community, I'm going to guess that you probably brought some stuff back on the bus every day. Did you talk amongst yourselves? How did you, oh, did you do? Yes. Oh yeah, I see the look yes. on your face. <laughs> yes, we talked about it. So even now, like when um my kids come home and tell me stories, and then I talk to my husband, I said, "Oh no, you know we were a united group. We the, the unity amongst us. Even if, let's say, I was in the tenth grade, if something happened and there one of us experienced a racial slur." Before you knew it, word would travel throughout. I don't know how, because we didn't have cell phones. It would travel all around the school, and it was addressed. It was addressed immediately. And there were boundaries that just weren't crossed back then because the message was very clear. We will not tolerate that. Let's talk about some of the people in your Weston High School experience. Was there anyone besides Mr. Ryan who believed in you, who took you under their wing? How did it feel to be a student there? I would say Mr. Gibson, he's still alive. He had very, very high expectations for us behaviorally, academically, and he made that known. He used to be the MECO director, and then he became, he taught social studies or history for a particular year. And I remember taking his class and Social studies, English were very easy subjects for me. I was generally a good student, but those particular classes, to me, they were kind of effortless. And I went in there with the attitude that I was going to coast because for those classes, I could coast and do well. He knew I was coasting. And so I remember writing a paper and he gave me a C. I was furious because I looked at a a friend of mine and I knew my paper was well written. It was better than hers. But he gave her a better grade, and I, and I did talk to him about it. He said, because you can do better, and I expect better. And I went back, and I redid it. He said, now, never give me, when I redid it, I, I received the A. He said, that's what I expect from you each time. Don't coast. And so that was a very what powerful. What a lesson. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I was still angry. I'm sure I had a bit of a, quote, toot. Uh, but he didn't let that deter him. So I, I still have dinner with him from, you know, time to time. I haven't seen him in a couple of years, but, you know, this reminds me I need to do that. After you graduated from Boston College, with your degree in business, you took sort of, I would call it a left-hand turn career-wise. You got your master's in education. I'd love for you to take me back to that decision. And I'm wondering, how did you come to that path? (laughs) The last thing in the world I wanted to do was to follow in the footsteps of my mother. I was always doing things in that area. It just seemed like a natural fit. And and then I, I realized... Just do what you want to do. Everything else will fall in place. And it has. Early on in your career, you go back to the school system that nurtured you as a Metco student, this time as the Metco liaison for this little town called Weston. What was your mission, your message, your motivation when you started that job? 
For me, it was about giving back. I mean, everyone always says that. So, you know, it probably sounds like a cliche, but I felt as if the role that I took on didn't really exist the way it should have. The role that I took on was really going to be a link, somebody who was going to be an advocate. And that's what I became. I became an advocate for the students. I became an advocate for the parents because when you don't live in the community, and you don't know, um, and this is an expression from Mr. G, how, quote, the game is played. Someone needs to teach you and someone needs to tell you. Along the way, you also became a classroom teacher, a fourth grade teacher. What did you learn by being a classroom teacher that you still bring with you to this day? Connecting it to the MECO experience and to teaching. Here's the connection. It's always important, not only important, but crucial to educate other people's children. And so what does that mean? It may, that child may not live in your community, but every child should have a high-quality education, and that's what Weston taught me. In my particular case, providing a high-quality education to me and my peers, I came back to teach in that community. So you never know who is going to be a teacher. You don't know who's going to be your neighbor. You don't know who the, who's going to be the person operating on you. And so we all have a responsibility in this in providing high quality not only a high quality education but also opportunities and so a lot of times that piece is missing I think in the suburbs a lot of people think that they're doing a favor to the kids from Boston no it is a favor to society to give all kids what they are entitled to in terms of education and that often gets missed did you experience racism as a black school teacher in a white community? Oh, yes. Give yes. me an example. I called them Three Stooges. I won't say their names. And I remember they had such a stronghold that they tried to tell me when I could and could not speak at a faculty meeting. Um, that, you know, I had to earn my way. And who was I to think, you know, I could express my opinion on certain matters? Children know what they are taught at home what they experience in their family around the dinner table, and what they learn in school. How do we change hearts and minds about diversity, anti-racism? There is no easy fix. Mm -mm. And I know this is a really big question. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? That question is so deep. I think, first of all, we have to deal with the legacy of slavery in this country. We have to deal with not only the legacy of slavery, we also have to deal with the genocide of indigenous peoples. And, you know, a lot of times that's glossed over in the curriculum. It's glossed over in the curriculum. And I also think when you go to people's homes, it's not always about what they say and do. It's often about what they don't say and what they don't do. And so even in terms of just looking at kids will notice your friends. You know, kids notice your friends. They notice if it's a homogeneous group, they notice what books are on the shelf, what books aren't on the shelf. They all notice that. They also pick up on the not-so-subtle cues that you, know, you may think that you're saying in private when you refer negatively about a group of people simply because of their culture, um, or their color, rather. But I think the most important piece is I would challenge a lot of people to really begin to understand that racism just isn't about the interpersonal. It's internalized. There are different levels, and they all work together. 
And so to stop thinking about racism just in terms of the overt forms of racism that happen between individuals, but to start looking at the reality that it is baked baked into the culture, the air that we breathe. It's structural, it's institutional, interpersonal and internalized, and all those forms work together. What has your experience been like as a parent raising children in an affluent white community? First of all, foremost, it was never about the happiness of my husband and I. It, it never was. It was just about my kids. You know, those are the choices that you often make as a parent. Going into the building and the person at the desk can't even say hello to you. Or a substitute teacher swearing at your child and, you know, you don't get a call from the school. I have to, and I'm thinking, this story sounds so far-fetched. It can't be real because you know how kids do. They, you know, you're thinking, is that, did that really happen? And then to advocate, did this story happen? And, of course, you know, there was a whole lot of apologies, but it's just a whole lot of stuff. Or kids thinking that they can take the liberty to pat my children on the head as if they're pets because they're fascinated by their hair. And then even I've had play dates for my daughter and I remember I had a beautiful black snowman not snowman Santa Claus and I remember these two little girls looking at the Santa Claus and saying "Ooh!" like they were disgusted by it and again that speaks to the messages that kids have received at home and in school and so when parents say that they don't know where their kids get it from those kind of are the kind of stories that you need to be aware of. They get it. They, you know, the messages don't have to be direct. They can be indirect. Tell me how motherhood changed you. I think that it's made me more patient. I think um, I sacrifice more. I also think that in a lot of ways it gave me more purpose, more purpose in the fact that I want the world that they have to be better than the world that I had. How does your family talk about experiences? You know, I have a quote from you from the article that says, there have been times when you, quote, have been shocked by the ignorance of teachers and peers. How do you as a family talk these experiences out? The kids come home, they tell you. How do you lift them back up again? My daughter is actually my shero. She calls things out front and center, and she still loves you afterwards. And so I'm really trying to live with that level of grace. It's not always easy. One thing I learned from my mother was that despite the messages you may hear from around you, they're not true. This is who you are, and this is what I want you to aspire to be. I see you as a leader because of the work that you're doing. What is your definition of leadership? (sighs) A lot of people think that the leader is the person who is at the forefront and leading and making all the decisions. I don't think that's a leader. I think the leader is the person who knows how to listen. I think the leader is the person who knows how to listen and knows how to say things so that they can be heard. I think a leader is someone who can lead with grace and even in times of difficulty can engage in a difficult conversation or difficult decision but still have mutual respect no matter how hard it is for the person that is in front of them and can lead distress-free. I read your blog about it's time to check your equity pulse for schools and for communities. Are you hopeful, Christina, about the future, about how we treat one another, how we see one another? Can this next generation 
fill this gap? Can they bridge this gap? Can they get to where we need to be? We can't forget that it's a journey, but it's a journey that doesn't end. I think you always have to challenge. When you see something that's not right, speak up. Because what a lot of people don't realize is that, okay, by you not speaking up, the next person may not speak up. And then before you know it, you know, it's, it's just a snowball, but it's always about the victim. And for victims to have to have to deal with the cumulative effect of just the day to day stuff, it's intense. And so will we ever get there? I'm not too sure where there is, but I think it's something that we have to together keep striving for. I think ultimately the goal is true equality. It's ongoing, deliberate actions to get to the point where everyone is treated with respect and dignity. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? And can you pass that along to our listeners? Be humble. No matter how much you have, you know, just move and act with humility. And um, I think the other piece, and it came from growing up in a Christian household, is really do unto others as you would have them do unto you. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? The power of prayer. The power of prayer is real. And one of my, when going through something that's really, really adversarial, um, there's a song, No Weapon Formed Against Me Shall Prosper. And that's what I tried to think of. And so even in my most challenging moments, when I felt alone or just exhausted, because when you're dealing with racism, it can wear on you. And so that expression of, you know, that we've heard, I'm tired, or I can't breathe. It's not just figurative language, it's real. And so I think in moments like that, just being able to say, you know, just turn it over to God, that that that's what makes the difference. Final question. At this moment in your life, what does success mean to you? How do you define it? For me to have made a positive impact on someone, If I've gotten them to think about race or racism or any form of oppression differently and to come back and say, you know, you were right, I learned, that's the biggest piece for me. It's not about the money. It's, you know, it's all that other stuff. I want to say thank you so much, Christina, for coming to my house, keeping me company today during a snowstorm and telling us your very inspiring story. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. If you know someone that I should interview, Reach out anytime. Tell me about her. Candy at CandyOterry.com. And thank you so much for listening to the story behind her success. What's your story? <laughs>